I don't think these things were ever meant for people sitting on chairs. <laughs> the thingy. Oh. Okay, well, we're almost at the end of the retreat. And what I thought I'd speak to you about tonight, to try and pull some of the strands that have been spoken about during the week together, is a topic which I'm afraid I'm only going to be able to give you a snapshot of tonight. I mean, Christina and I usually do a course on this, and when we teach this in a course, it usually takes at least a week. Um, So this, as you can see, is a little bit of a, a whirlwind tour a snapshot. And the topic is probably the most important teaching in the whole of early Buddhism. And this is the teaching of dependent arising. So if you like, the topic or the title of tonight's talk would be dependent arising or, here's the subtitles, the returning nightmare or the mess I'm in. Now, this particular topic um, within Buddhist thought is a difficult topic. There is no doubt about this. It's been difficult even for the traditions themselves to interpret this uh, particular teaching of the Buddha. And there are quite a number of different versions of it. The longest version is in this thing that I'm going to read you to something from, which is the Long Discourses of the Buddha, known as the Diginakaya. And there's a particular sutta in here called the Mahanadana Sutta, the Sutta on Origination, um, in which the Buddha introduces this. Now, the teaching goes back right to the early teachings, and you see it as you look through the text, beginning to metamorphose into the versions that we see of it. And the traditional version, the version I'm going to really be talking about this evening, is what's called the 12-link version. Now, there are lots of different other versions, and the Buddha doesn't seem to be tied to any particular model of this. This seems to be the most exhaustive, the most extensive out of the models that he uses. And uh, right at the beginning of the Mahanadana Sutta, the the Buddha really flags up to Ananda that this is a difficult teaching, um, because you hear that Venvananda coming to the Buddha, Ananda is the Buddha's cousin, he is also his... um, Basically, his attendant, the person who looks after him, particularly in his older age. It says, The Venerable Ananda came to the Lord, saluted him, sat down to one side, and says, It is wonderful, Lord. It is marvellous how profound this dependent origination is and how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me to be as clear as clear. Pregnant pause. Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. <laughs> this dependent origination is profound, and it, is, and it appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this doctrine, that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, covered as with a blight, tangled like a coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe, 
the ill destiny, the ruin, and the round of birth and death. I don't think Ananda really got it, did he? <laughs> when the Buddha ever says something is profound in the text, he's saying it's difficult. It's difficult to understand. And I don't think he's really indicating here that it's difficult to understand intellectually. I think what he's really indicating here, Ananda becomes a little bit the fall guy in these texts, as, as almost a representative of you and I. It's like every man. Um, and Ananda's lack of understanding is really representative of our lack of understanding. Um, because when the Buddha says we haven't penetrated this, we haven't seen this, and as a result of not that, we're tied up in this particular, particular knot, then it's, it's not because we don't understand it intellectually, it's because we don't see it in actuality. You know, we can often understand things intellectually, and what do they do? Make very little difference at all. Yeah? And the Buddha's teaching is a practical teaching. His psychology is a practical psychology. If there is any philosophy in the Buddha's teaching, it's a practical philosophy. It's a practical ethics. Everything he does is geared to practicality and actually affecting transformation. So this profound teaching, using his words, is a teaching which is meant to actually change individuals, not something to be grasped intellectually, not something to be viewed, to use the philosophical term, ontologically. It's something which is to be penetrated, understood, and realized in terms of your own life. Because when we start talking in my kind of slightly amusing subtitles to this, the returning nightmare, or the mess I'm in, this is a description of that returning nightmare. It purports to describe samsara. It purports to describe the circularity of our experience. Does that sound familiar, the circularity of our experience, that feeling of deja vu? Um, things returning, things coming back again, that's why it's the returning nightmare, because we engage in the activities and thought processes, um, activities of body, speech, and mind, which in a sense... Um, determine what comes after. However, in understanding this, so the Buddha believes, when we be really begin to penetrate and really begin to see dependent arising in operation, what we begin to see is not only the mess and how we generate this mess, how we generate the problems that we have, but also strategies for actually getting out of this mess. So this is not just meant to be a kind of another depressive um, to show us basically you know, how we screw up constantly, um, but it's actually meant to be a teaching which shows us the way to liberate ourselves by understanding, if you like, the process by which we create, induct uh, the particular problems that we have. And this is the, basically what the Buddha is trying to get us to see to actually use this almost as a meditative tool. Now, we can't see the whole thing, but we can see certain dimensions of it very, very clearly. And some of those dimensions have already been mentioned in some of the Dharma talks already this week. So that's why I'm saying what I think this teaching does is pull together some of the disparate things have been said, and particularly in relationship to the notion of the self. Because actually, this is... Um, I'm afraid to use the, your T-shirt, Christina, you know, the T-shirt that you saw. It is all about me, uh, again, because it's about how that me is generated in a lot of our experience. 
It's 12 links. Uh, these are links of dependency. I've often seen this referred to as the Buddhist, Buddhist theory of causation, which I think is a very bad move because there's nothing about, you know, step one causes step two and step two causes step three all the way through to number 12. It's not about that at all. It's about a relationship of dependencies. The way something depends and arises out of the previous conditions. It's not caused by those previous conditions. I might want to make that very, very clear. But it's certainly dependent on the previous conditions. What we have often in the, in the text is a metaphor of, of, of corn stooks, which are actually stacked against each other, which mutually support each other. You know, you've seen this when they stack um, corn or hay in fields. You can often get it into bundles and then you get them to support each other. Um, and so this is basically what the Buddha is using, a, a, a kind of mutually dependent holding up of certain conditions. And he starts with quite a penetrating analysis, I think. Um, if we scan the text, I mean, there are, this is scattered throughout the text, of the primary condition which, in a sense, generates the whole circularity of experience. That primary, primary condition, which generates the circularity of our experience, he calls in Pali avijja. Literally, non-knowledge. The word vidya in Pali is related to the word veda in Sanskrit, um, which basically means knowledge. And so this is indicating non-knowledge. However, let's translate this word. Generally translated as ignorance. I have really no fault to find with that translation, except that it doesn't really, I think, get at some of the nuances and subtleties <coughs> of what the Buddha is really indicating by ignorance. Because ignorance, as we often understand it in the West, can be simply deprivation of knowledge. Let me put this to you. This would be a situation whereby, even if I had all the knowledge, I would still continue to do the same things. So this is not just about not knowing, it's also, in a certain sense, about not wanting to know. Yeah. I read about not wanting to know, overlooking the various conditions um, that give rise to certain outcomes in our lives. One of the things that we don't want to know about, in fact, there's a lot of things we don't want to know about, but in particular, you know, I would actually say that this teaching, and I shall go back in a second and refer to its kind of origins uh, or its place within the Buddhist teaching. Uh, but this teaching really, in many ways, can be seen as an extrapolation of the three characteristics. The characteristic of anicca, of impermanence, the characteristic of dukkha, and the characteristic of the two talks you've had over the other previous nights, and the characteristic of anatta, of not self here. So it's really a deep look at that. It's a deep look at Samudaya, the second of the ennobling truths. You know, there is a cause to dukkha. Yeah. When we speak about samsara, samsara, circularity of experience, circularity of experience which comes with a certain tone to it. You know, that tone, for the most part, is dukkha unpleasantness, unsatisfactoriness, sometimes downright suffering. Yeah? This is the tonality of a lot of our experience. 
and it has this circularity to it. It comes back, and it seems to come back, so much so, and I kind of alluded to this a second ago, in that sense of deja vu that often we can have when we stop and we actually think about the problems that we're having at the moment. And if we're realistic, sometimes we go, I'm actually making the same mistakes as I made 10 years ago. Not a lot has changed here. I just want you to read your quote from um, the German language poet Rilke. Um, I must admit, Kinchner was horrified I was going to read this to you in English rather than German. <laughs> and this, in a sense, shows you something about that circularity of experience. And it's particular, it's, it comes out of his poetic novel, which is the, um, the notebooks of Malta Lorid's Brigger. I'm lying in my bed five flights up, and my day, which nothing interrupts, is like a clock face without hands. As something that has been lost for a long time reappears one morning in its old place, safe and sound, almost newer than when it vanished, just as if someone had been taking care of it, so here and there on my blanket, lost feelings out of my childhood lie and are like new. All the lost fears are here again. The fear that a small woolen thread sticking out of the hem of my blanket may be hard, hard and sharp as a steel needle. The fear that this little button on my nightshirt may be bigger than my head, bigger and heavier. The fear that the breadcrumb which just dropped off my bed may turn into glass and shatter when it hits the floor and the sickening worry that when it does so, everything will be broken forever. The fear that the ragged edge of a letter which was torn open may be something forbidden, which no one ought to see. Something indescribably precious, for which no place in the room is safe enough. The fear that if I fall asleep, I might swallow the piece of coal lying in front of the stove. The fear that some number begins to grow in my brain until there is no more room for it inside me. The fear that I might be lying on granite, on grey granite. The fear that I might start screaming and that people will come running to my door and finally force it open. The fear that I might betray myself and tell everything I dread. And the fear that I might not be able to say anything at all because everything is unsayable. And the other fears, the fears, the fears, the fears. I prayed once to rediscover my childhood and it has come back. And I feel that it is just as difficult as it used to be and that growing older has served absolutely no purpose at all. I think that gives you a sense of the quality of samsara, of things returning again and again and again. And we can try to rediscover, try to, try to reclaim some aspects. And actually what we discover a lot of the time, as in the Rilke extract, is that we haven't learned anything. There is a kind of fundamental confusion that underlies a lot of our activity in the world. Have you noticed how, and I'm going to use a kind of Heideggerian phrase here, how we're kind of thrown into the world? You know, Heidegger talks about this as we are literally thrown into the world. Being in thrown into this world, if you probably have noticed, we don't get a user's manual. Yeah. It doesn't come with a user's manual, does it? And how to operate in this world. Um, often using, again, a metaphor, 
often it's like being dropped into a foreign country as we grow up and we're trying to find our way around. We're trying to learn to speak the language. And, you know, we go down one valley and we go down another valley and we're trying to seek the topography of this country that we inhabit, which is called our life. We have guides, but the guides are pretty well confused as ourselves. By, by the way, they're called parents. <laughs> and as a consequence of that, we never really exit the confusion. The confusion remains with us. And out of that confusion, we engage in repetition, in doing things again and again and again. And not out of any sense of being unpleasant, bad people. These are the coping strategies you know, that uh, Akinshino spoke eloquently about last night. You know, the self is a coping stra strategy. It might be a confusion, but it's a coping strategy. It's the way that we begin to find our way around the world, both evolutionarily, evolutionarily and also uh, in terms of our psychological health. Yeah. What might have been okay evolutionary actually now, these days, actually doesn't have the payoff that we expect. It actually has the payoff of dukkha in a lot of our experience, particularly when we grasp after that self and hold on to that self. So avidya is not just ignorance, not wanting to know, not knowing, but it's a fundamental confusion that we operate within the world as we try to find our way around the world. It's a confusion in a sense, which is, this is a quote from Nyanguta and Nikaya, um, the numerical discourses, a first beginning of ignorance cannot be conceived. Ignorance too has its nutriment, it's fed. It is not without nutriment. Yeah. So it not only is there just, if you like, the untraceable beginning of this confusion, which in our lives is untraceable. It goes right back to very, very early childhood, down, out into those areas of our lives which actually we can't cognitively evoke for ourselves often. Um, there is no beginning to it. It can't be conceived. It's just always being present as far as the Buddha concerned, is concerned and trying to seek an originary cause for that ignorance actually is almost a metaphysical question it's a begging of the question of, of that we actually experience it. We experience this confusion. This is our starting place. This is what we have to deal with. And that is the task. And so out of that ignorance is growing other conditions, actually grows the other 11 conditions. It doesn't cause them. It, in a sense, what we have to see is something more like there is a flow of confusion which is being passed through all the other 11 conditions you know, in this descriptive pattern that the Buddha is talking about. This descriptive pattern is not only just a pattern of sangsara, it's a patterning of each moment. This is one way of looking at it. There is a lot of argument in the traditions which I'm not going to go into about actually exactly how one interprets this. But one particular one which I find very, very persuasive is the idea that actually all of these links starting with ignorance occurring in every moment. Every moment of our experience is patterned. It's, if you like, it has a template to it. And this is the basic template of what is actually happening in our experience. So it's a fundamental confusion. It's this extrapolation 
of, if you like, you know, putting it very crudely, as I did in my subtitle to this talk, it's, it's an extrapolation of the mess we're in. It's beginning to understand that it does have, if you like, some beginning, although we can't trace its origin. It actually begins here and stays here and is circulating and swirling around in our experience at this moment in time unless we begin to deal with it. It's particularly, I think, an extrapolation again, an, an investigation into the whole notion of not-self. Yeah. Self is the problem. Dependent arising describes impermanent, but it describes all of those three marks of existence. Anything, and there are two versions of dependent arising that's often talked about in the texts, what I call a more generalized version of dependent arising, and one which is specifically, and this is the one I'm dealing with this evening, that deals with human psychology. You know, human becoming, you know, as we experience it in our day-to-day -day lives, as we experience it as we sit on our cushions at this moment. The generalized version runs very simply, this happens, that happens, this ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. Yeah? That's a paraphrase, but that's pretty well the nub of it. This is happening, that happens. This arises dependent on this. That ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. In many ways, this is also a description, in a sense, of the template for awakening. Because with the ceasing to happen of certain conditions which uphold a certain state, that state we might describe as sangsara with the condition of dukkha, or the, the taste being one of dukkha, if we can identify those conditions which uphold this entity that we might call sangsara, this circularity of experience, is literally going round in circles. Um, somebody described to me once, I wish I'd coined it myself, somebody described sangsara as one vast bad habit. Yeah. <laughs> Just going round and round and round, doing the same stuff again and again and again, based on confusion, based on not knowing and sometimes willfully not wanting to know although I would actually add that the willful part is very little in comparison with the actual not knowing, not wanting to know, because I'm so intimately acquainted with my understanding of the world. It's a bit like wearing these glasses, if I had a tint on these glasses. You know, I believe the world was pink, or red, or blue, or dark glasses, or whatever it was. And if somebody said take them off and I say no that's the way the world is yeah. I refuse in a sense to take them off and actually this is a little of what is involved when we start talking about avidya here so it's describing the three marks of existence it's describing how dukkha comes into being it's describing impermanence in fact no thing including self can be an independently existing entity if it is dependently originated, or it rises dependently. Now, that might sound like a philosophical thought. It isn't. <laughs> it really isn't a dependent. It really isn't a philosophical thought. What it's saying is, if, the, if anything, 
if I am dependent as a self for, on anything in my existence, then I can't exist independently. Common sense, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, it also describes the pattern of impermanence. Yeah. One thing arises, another thing comes, one thing passes away, another thing comes into being. That passes away, something else comes into being. Remember we spoke about or was spoken about, you know, in the question and answers and also in the talks over the previous two nights, that the self is a process. It's a ser series of arisings and passings away uh, that we can look at on a number of different levels. We can look at it on the level of form, our physical form, just you know, to kind of boil it down to something very, um, very noticeable in our experience. We can see it in terms of the feelings that we have. They arise and they pass away, that pleasantness, that unpleasantness in our experience. And the neither, they shift and change, don't they? Yeah. They're not under our control, as was made, you know, was, as the point was very, very strongly made. So these things are arising and passing away constantly. Um, there are other elements of our experience which arise and pass away too. Consciousness. Consciousness is not conceived of as a thing. It's conceived of as a series of momentary events, yeah, which are simply arising and passing away. Nose consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness. You know, the events which contact objects, you know, which contact sounds, which contact physical objects, these arise and pass away. Because when my attention goes from this physical object to a sound, that sense is gone for that moment. We're in flux. We are a kinetic process where we try to turn ourselves into something static. This is one of the big problems. Each link in the chain, just following on from that thought, each link in the chain of dependent arising is also something that's active rather than static. So when we look at these chain, this chain, we could look at it, you know, and the Tibetans actually draw this out in a circle. Some of you may know this. It's called the Bhava Chakra, the wheel of life, it's usually uh, referred to. And on the outer rim of this wheel of life, you will find pictorial icon iconographic representations of all of these 12 links. Interestingly, the, the first link, Avidya, this ignorance, this confusion, is depicted as a blind man leading a blind man. Yeah. Hence, it goes back to our confusion again. You know, we're trying to stumble our way around the world. Let's make this point very strongly, though. There is nothing bad in this. It might give rise to bad events, but actually, in itself, there is nothing bad in this. This is not like some original sin that we've committed and dwell in. Um, ignorance, as many of you will know in Buddhist terms, is something to be dispelled. Yeah? You find texts with titles like the Dispeller of Ignorance. Yeah? So the whole purpose of understanding this, understanding our rootedness, which I'm spending quite a long time on, our rootedness in this avidya, in this ignorance confusion, is to understand finally, of course, that it can give way. It can give way to liberative manners of being in this world rather than ways of being in this world which are determined and dependent upon this confusion, this fundamental confusion.
very specifically often, this confusion is spoken about as being the not knowing about the four ennobling truths. You know, I don't know that things are dukkha. When I'm admired in it, when I'm enmeshed in um, these things happening to me, I don't sometimes understand that they're dukkha. I certainly don't understand that pleasure has a taste and the taste will be dukkha. Now, that might sound very pessimistic. I think it's a very realistic thought, is that pleasure will arise and it will pass away. The passing away of pleasure is dukkha. I want to repeat it. And sometimes I can't repeat it. Um, The philosopher Kierkegaard once, um, in a little book called Repetition, detailed out something, a little experiment he tried to do, which was to repeat a pleasure. The book's called Repetition. Uh, In that, he details out how he had gone to a performance of Don Giovanni, Mozart's Don Giovanni, at the Copenhagen National Opera. Um, And he'd taken a particular box, he'd gone to a particular restaurant beforehand, he'd worn a particular suit, and had this wonderful performance. And he decided to try and replicate the conditions to see if he'd get the same amount of pleasure. So, before the performance, he went to the same restaurant, ate exactly the same menu. He went to exactly the same box in the theatre whilst wearing exactly the same clothes to hear exactly the same singers singing exactly the same opera. Did he get exactly the same pleasure? No. (laughs) That is Dukkha. (laughs) Have you noticed how when we try to repeat things, And there is that sense of trying to repeat things, to try and get that pleasure, to get that taste once again. We can't actually do it. Uh, It evades us, it eludes us. It's somehow evanescent. It's it's retreating the more we pursue it, to try and pursue those kind of pleasures and through repetition. And so it's not knowing dukkha. It's not knowing that many of the things in our experience are actually dukkha. As I say, this is not pessimistic, it's just realistic, this diagnosis. It's not knowing, actually, that dukkha is often caused by grasping, clinging, craving after things. Why do we crave sometimes? It might be asked, you know, if we look at those four ennobling truths, why do we crave? Well, we often crave because life is hard. We want some alleviation from it. And so one of the ways often that uh, we attempt to overcome the difficulties of our ordinary day-to-day existence, the the kind of vicissitudes that we find ourselves enmeshed in, is to try and crave something. It's like coming home from work and going to yourself, I must have a little treat. Yeah? Ever done that? (laughs) Of course not. You're too elevated. (laughs) So we attempt um, to assuage the pain often of the workplace and the conditions and the difficulties that we've experienced in our day by that little bit of pleasure at the end of the day. That's a way we attempt to do it. So craving can be seen as a natural outcome, one defense mechanism of trying to deal with the difficulties of life. But of course that feeds back. It's a feedback loop and creates further dukkha, because no matter what I try to do, that pleasure will not last. It drops away and causes and generates yet more craving. 
Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a vicious circle that we're entrapped in. And in fact, the whole of the samsaric circle stemming from this degree of ignorance is actually a closed circle unless we can find a way into it. And this is actually what this teaching is about, trying to find a way into it. We also, <laughs> some of us, we just don't see that there's ever an end to it. Yeah? That this can actually cease, that this kind of behavior, this driven behavior can actually cease for us. Yeah? The Buddha, of course, is saying, and this is the important part, this is a, a really absolutely fundamental part of the Buddha's teaching, that often gets overlooked in those two first parts. There is Dukkha and there is, of course, Samudhya. There's an origin of Dukkha. Not necessarily a cause. There's an origin for that Dukkha. That it actually can go through Niroda. Cessation. It can cease. It can stop. You know, the actual word Niroda, if you actually trace some of the etymological origins of it, actually is very interesting. It means to stop leaking. Almost as if there's a form of radical incontinence that we suffer from. <laughs> that incontinence is that we continue to leak defilements onto the world. <laughs> yeah, it actually, the term is actually derived from a, a paddy field economy, where you actually have to shore up a paddy field for it to stop it leaking out its stuff. And usually, you know, the stuff like the manure that's used to... Um, to actually sustain the growth of the rice, you know. So you actually shore it up, you stop it from leaking here. And so one image of this is actually that's what we're attempting to do, that actually this kind of leaky process that we're getting, it's not quite the same as a Kinshino's leaky boat, um, but in a way it could be. <laughs> uh, this leaking process that we're engaged in can cease. And of course, finally, there is a way that we can go through to that cessation, which is, of course, the, the Noble Eightfold Path. Avidya is a misidentification. It's a misidentification. It's not actually seeing these truths. I'm very hesitant to use that word, or to see these ennobling factors in our lives. And why are they ennobling? Just very briefly, they're ennobling because to inquire into Dukkha to inquire into its origins, the possibility of its cessation and a path to its cessation is an ennobling process. This is the Buddha actually hijacking a word in Indian culture, a word that many of you will know, the word is Arya. Yeah. Aryan comes from it, you know, which uh, of course was misused in the 1930s and 1940s uh, by the Nazi party, but the word Arya actually meant noble. Yeah. This was usually applied to a race of people. The Buddha applied it to those who inquired in this way rather than to a race of people. Yeah. So those who inquired into the origins of Dukkha and its possibility of its cessation were ennobled by this. The biggest problem, and I'm sure you have got this, so I'm not going to explore this in detail. The biggest problem, of course, of which we're ignorant and is enmeshed into these into these whole mechanisms of confusion that we inhabit is, of course, self. Self is arising out of confusion. It's enmeshed in the process of confusion. It's a misidentification. Atta, which is the Pali word for self, causes the problem of dukkha. 
Now, I probably need a little bit of explanation to go through to get that there. Dukkha is constructed by a self. We have two senses of dukkha that we're often, often operative with, whereas the dukkha that happens to us, just simply part of being the human beings that we are, the existential beings that we are, old age, sickness and death, let's just take the base levels. Here are existential facts that, of course, happen to everybody and will happen to everybody in the course and the duration of their life at some point in time. It is the self that constructs problems around old age, sickness and death and numerous other areas of existentiality in our lives. So we're looking at constructed dukkha, the dukkha that is constructed by a self. In other words, what we're doing is we're adding unnecessary layers to the basic existential conditions of life. And we do so out of ignorance, we do so out of the true, in a sense, knowledge or understanding of the selfing process. We take it as being this fixed point in our existence around actually which most of the other links in the chain are going to um, actually support, as we will see as we go through them. There is ignorance of what Dukkha is a lot of the time, where it comes from. Where does Dukkha come from? You know, when we're caught up in the throes of Dukkha, we don't just see that we're adding stuff to it, do we? We don't just see that we're adding material to these basic existential factors of life. We're not aware of that. We, it's almost as if it comes part and parcel as one thing. Here is Dukkha. We're not aware of our complicity in this process, our complicity as a self in this whole process. We're not aware of that complicity of the sense of self and we have ignorance about the sense of self that we do have a lot of the time. Because it's said, and this was said in both of the other talks um, revolving around this notion of the sense of self, it's, you know, it feels so intuitive that we have this fixed sense of self. Something like that homunculus in the head, the little crane driver, you know, <laughs> pulling all the levers. There we go. <laughs> you know, there's a little self in there somewhere operating furiously away, keeping this, little, you know, this being going. Um, so there's ignorance about what that sense of self is. There's unawareness that dukkha has a source in that sense of self. There is also an unawareness that something can be done about it and that sense of self that we have so strongly can come to some kind of rest. We don't have to be in conflict with a process, but we are often in conflicts with a thing that we call ourselves. An internal war, often an internecine war that's going on in various aspects of our psyche, between our ideals about ourself and the, the, what ourself actually is and the way it manifests in the world. Yeah. We can learn to see by investigation that the, that the Buddha obviously outlines all of the teachings are actually about this. We can learn to see by investigation in, through the Buddha's teaching um, that everything arises in a cycle. Yeah, everything arises in a cycle. 
Um, everything that arises in a cycle and actually resultantly rests on this primary condition, which is of confusion. Gosh, that look took a long time to get through that bit. Now I'm going to have to really go fast. <laughs> actually, I don't mind even if I don't get to the end of this today because I want to just lay down some primary conditions that are important in, in what is spoken about in, in relationship to dependent origination or dependent arising. The second link in the chain. If that's the primary link in the chain, there is a second link in the chain, which is this almost untranslatable word. I think it's a word that I don't know about a Akinshino, but almost everybody who knows some Pali scratches their head about how on earth to translate this word. And the word is Sankara, which literally means, or comes from a root, which means to be formed and forming. And often, therefore, they're referred to as formations here. And basically, there are three kinds of formations arising out of confusion. Hear that. If you like, when we go through this link, as we go through briefly through these links, hear, if you like, that they always refer to arising out of confusion, arising out of ignorance. You know, so in other words, rather than a kind of first cause that's left behind, and that's one way we could view it, actually it's almost like a, a, a feed system. It's feeding, the ignorance is feeding all of the other dimensions that are arising. It feeds, for example, our senses. It feeds our points of contact. It feeds the feelings that come through. And certainly it feeds, of course, the cravings and the graspings. And these are just to mention some of the other links extremely briefly. Yeah. So there are three kinds of formations that are driven by this fundamental confusion. These are formations which are associated with body, speech, and mind. At the most basic level, and please, this is not canonical and don't take it too seriously, but one way of looking at, of course, formations is habitual factors. Factors, in fact, are so close to us a lot of the time, we don't even perceive them as habit. They underlie most of our processes. They are very deep structures, which are not static, they're changing, but they are structures which are negotiating our relationship with the world most of the time. Yeah. They are kind of templates for the ways that we understand the world. So as we've grown up, we've found ways of coping with the world, haven't we? So it's perfectly understandable why we get these factors, why we get these habits, is we develop certain habits in relationship to the world and our environment and our society that we find ourselves in, and we develop ways of body activity, ways of speech, and ways of thought that help us to cope in our ordinary lives with it. Again, so notice there is no blame in this. You know, this is kind of just laying out how the process happens, you know, how we find ourselves in the condition that we find ourselves in a lot of the time. So the formations arise, these conditioned habits, these habitual formations, arise out of this fundamental state of ignorance and confusion. So, what do we engage in, in in meditation processes? Well, actually, a lot of the time, what we're actually having a very good view of is, of course, our sankharas. 
As we sit there on the cushion, what we're actually beginning to view, and you'll see this in repetitive cycles, and they will become extremely familiar to you, almost boringly so, a lot of the time, is you will see the same stuff coming up again and again and again. And I presume that's probably happened to a lot of you this week. You know, just seeing those activities of you know, wishing to do certain things, um, speech patterns which might be there, which I have, and of course the big one that drives the other two, the patterns of thought that drive those other activities. The activities of speech acts in this world, you know, whether I say something harshly when I'm attacked, whether I say something kindly when I'm attacked. Now, the thing to bear in mind here is we can, we can actually you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater a bit because there's a tendency to demonize all sankharas. You know, all sankharas must be bad. All sankharas are not bad. Yeah? When we look at a field, we see many things growing. There will be a lot of weeds, but there also might be some beautiful grasses. There might be some wild flowers within that field. Um, what we're trying to do, of course, is weed the field of sankharas you know, to those which are helpful and useful and fairly innocuous in our day-to-day -day activities and actually do not create dukkha and identify those ones that specifically create the dukkha in our daily lives. So not all sankharas are a problem. Some are very good and very useful. Yeah. But what we do in a lot of meditational activity is actually get a very good understanding of the operation of sankharas in our lives by seeing again that circularity, that coming up around again and again and again. So not every activity of body, speech and mind is a problem. Yeah. It's really worth pointing that out before we get almost too um, self-critical here. All, this, all these sankharas must be, must be bad. But the one thing is, sankharas are extremely intimate. Sometimes habit patterns that we don't know about. Sometimes it takes an other to um, point out your habit patterns, doesn't it? Yeah? And I'm not talking about anything particularly devastating here, but notice how under threat you, as a self, feel when somebody goes, do you know you've got that irritating little habit? <laughs> you go, who, me? <laughs> and you can almost feel yourself bristle, you know, you know like a porcupine where the quills go up. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> when, I think, when we get those little instances where somebody points out, I think it points to the intimacy of a lot of our habitual patterns. Now, these are not directly the same as Sankara's, but they're very close to them in many, many cases, these habitual patterns which we inhabit and which we enact. If you ever tell yourself you know, or tell another, for example, I always do it that way, notice that there can be no other possibility. This is not up for negotiation. Yeah, it's always done this way. In other words, there's something about the rightness of the self in this. Notice how the self is deeply, deeply implicated in this here. We're also looking at what activities of body, speech and mind, what activities reinforce that sense of self as well. Yeah. Also, we're looking at the ways that we do this. 
beginning to see the ways that some of these patterns, for example, just saying, you know, when somebody might be critical of you and saying, well, that's me, that's the way I do things. Again, notice you can get that sort of slight bristliness uh, when that, that's the way I do things, that's the way I am. Yeah? Have you ever found yourself uttering those words? You know, even if not verbally, but just saying them to yourself and going, well, why are they saying that? That's the way I am. You should understand me. That's the way I am. So we begin to understand and look at the ways that you know, we're engaged in, in in terms of activity, in terms of speech patterns, in terms of our thought patterns, how they reinforce this sense of self that we have, which again, we've spoken about so much over the last uh, two evenings. Look at the ways also in which we feed underlying drives. We are engaged in feeding underlying drives. For example, the sense of satisfaction that we often get, because many ways the sankharas can be seen as kind of drive patterns, patterns for negotiating our way around the world, um, ways of understanding the world. The sense of satisfaction when we confirm something about us, you know, confirm something about ourselves, um, confirm, be confirmed also in the rightness of an opinion. What happens when we get that rightness? We want more of it. You know, we want to be confirmed that our opinions are right because those opinions are actually related to ourselves. You know? It's like we have affirmation. I have affirmation because I'm right. <laughs> yeah? The opposite is the case, isn't it? Often we can, we feel mm, slightly lesser if something isn't seen as being quite right and we don't get that sense of satisfaction. So we're also beginning to look at, um, in an investigatory way, at those senses of satisfaction that we get. So, kind of trying to draw some of this, this particular part to a close, you know, Sankara basically equals Avijja. Sankhara, formations, habit patterns, drive structures, equals basically the outflow of confusion. It's the, it's the product. It is the child of confusion. These are the children of confusion, not just child. It's plural. They come as a gang. Often we don't know we have these drives. This is really what's so difficult about unearthing them. We don't know we have them. You know, we don't know how they play out in a lot of our lives. We just don't see the outcomes of that. So sometimes it can be tracing what are the outcomes? What are the outcomes of this way of thinking? What are the consequences? What are the consequences of speaking in this way with these patterns? I might think I'm being honest. You just might be being brutal. Yeah. You might just be being unkind. And what are the outcomes of so-called, I always tell the truth? Yeah. So ethically, there's something in here as well, part and parcel about what, we, um, what, what are the actual consequences of our speech patterns. So we don't know often what they are. We don't we know we have these drives, how they play out. A lot of this, of course, as I've tried to indicate so far, is about self-preservation. Yeah? Core assumptions that we have. Yeah. These are like core beliefs that we hold on to. Core assumptions, often just simply about how the world works. I think it was uh, a Kinchino who mentioned traveling to other cultures. You know, this can be a reality check, can't it? 
Because our core beliefs are often challenged, our core assumptions are often challenged by coming into contact with other cultures that do things completely differently from my assumptions. I won't go into the toileting humour that we had last (laughs) night. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Kinshnow. But there are many levels in which we encounter that difference, isn't there? There's many levels that we encounter a, a kind of confrontation between our assumptions about the way the world is and the way, for example, another culture operates here. But the important point about it is that these, when we're inhabiting these core assumptions, we never question them. And these are part and parcel of the sankharas. We never question often how we're situated in the world. We might question certain dimensions of how we're situated in the world, but the actual core structure of how we're situated in the world never comes under question. Even when we can identify habits, activities, it can also be extremely difficult to bring an end to them, can't it? That's the big thing. Even when we identify them, that I have this particular habit, and some of those are easy to identify. They might be just linguistic habits, they might be habits such as smoking or drinking or anything like that. We can understand them, we can see often where they come from, but we still can't bring them to an end. They feel that close to us uh, in many ways. To use, actually, a Kinchino's phrase about the self, sankharas give us a payoff. They control our world. They help us to negotiate our way around that world. Without sankharas, in some senses, we will be lost our world would start to fall apart if we didn't have our habits. In a sense, this is another confirmation of a certain degree of OCD that the Buddha speaks about in Sangsaric existence. We do things. We try to structure our patterns. We have these little habits which hold the world in place, which keep me as a subject in place in this world. So they have a payoff. Lest we think it's all our fault, society also conditions us. So we're in this process of beginning to examine sankharas, we begin to examine the way that society and the assumptions of a society that we live in also shape our view of the world here. And this doesn't mean totally rejecting, obviously, that everything that society proffers to us, that can be very adolescent. This is actually, though, seeing the conditioning processes as they are operative honours. In fact, the um, psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who was mentioned, I think, in one of the questions earlier today, you know, Lacan spoke about the unconscious as not being somehow inside your head, but out there in language and culture. These were the things that were often shaping even our understanding of ourself. Um, and they're unknown. They're unconscious. We are un- they're unconscious factors which impinge on us. Yeah. They form sankharas. In other words, there are societal sankharas. Yeah. Many of those, and I'm spending a long time on these first two things because I think they are so important. Um, many of those sankharas, for example, the societal sankharas that we're given, actually tell us what will give us happiness. You know, so it's not just the advertising, it's actually something deeply implicit in the conditioned values that we take from society, which form our ideas of how we might seek happiness, where we might look for it, 
how we might acquire it. So it might be through beauty, through wealth, through power. These are all considered to be kind of legitimate pathways to happiness in most Western, American, European societies. These are the things that are proffered to us by society as being the goal of being within those societies. So they govern our outlooks. We come to the third factor, and I really am moving very fast now because I don't want to get into a long evening here. When we start, start talking about what's known as vijnana, consciousness, you know, perhaps awareness here would be another way of translating this, consciousness stroke awareness. In a way, it looks back. It looks back to the sankharas because it's part of what begins the sankhara process as we are aware in this world, as we, as we start to move with our senses through the world. So, very sp- specifically, the texts speak about six forms of consciousness. The five sense consciousnesses plus the mental sense consciousness. A consciousness arises through the senses. There's an attached to the senses. Sankaras drive the awareness, awareness or the consciousness that we have. In other words, those habit patterns, putting it as most basic again, drive the way that we become aware of certain things in the world. In fact, we see them through those lenses, if you like, of our sankaras, our deeply, our deeply embedded conditions of activity, speech, and mind. It's because they drive all of our other processes, including our consciousness processes, that they are a problem to us. So we spoke in the question and answer session today about the job of sati was actually to direct perception in a way, in a sense, that's cleaned up, that doesn't have sankhara as the dominant force for making us re-experience things. Because sankhara is habits of perception. Sankharas are habits of perception. The consciousness that is spoken about is a consciousness of something that's intimately related to the senses, and it arises and it passes away. Consciousness is a series of arisings and passings away. And if we begin to actually begin to introspect that just a little, we see that our consciousness of thoughts is a series of, con- of arisings and passings away. If we actually are aware, you know, for example, I can be conscious of touch at this moment, you know, physical touch of things touching me, of my you know, buttocks on my seat, but I can be conscious of and this now moves as a, in almost in a gestalt into the background now of the audience, you know, of people out there. And I can focus and that can move and I can be aware of the, the AC operative. And so my consciousness is, is moving. You know? It's not a fixed phenomena. It actually has objects. Um, this is what's called the intentionality of consciousness. It actually intends objects. This is the foundation of thinking. This kind of awareness, it's the foundation of thinking. You know, the awareness of the rumbling in the stomach. You know, the feeling fades away. 
the consciousness fades away and we think about it. Yeah? We tell ourselves stories about how hungry I am, what I'd like to eat. I'm not making you salivate, I hope, at this time of night. We tell stories about our hunger. And so any consciousness phenomena and sense conscious basis becomes, if you like, the ground platform for storytelling, for the narratives that we start to inhabit. The sense consciousness that is spoken of here is grounded in sankhara. It's seeking what is best for our existence. Yeah? This is the way we go through the world. It's almost like, you know, I think Christina often uses this phrase, hungry eyes. We look through, the, look at the world with hungry eyes, seeing what can gratify us. Just as the way that we can look at the world literally with hunger and see what can gratify us um, through ingesting food here. We do that with our senses. Yeah? It's seeking what's best for our existence. Yeah. And this has nothing to do with need, by the way. Yeah. This has nothing to do with the basic needs of shelter and food and warmth and that. In a way, what this does is it promotes a constant seeking. And that source of our constant seeking is through our sense consciousnesses, through our thought processes, you know, as, we sense, as we seek sat satisfaction in our existence. The world itself becomes seen in sense of utility. You know, what can it do for me? Yeah. How can I gratify myself? How can I feel more at home in this world? You know, this is what our sense consciousnesses are doing. And this is occurring through sankhara-driven consciousness. And of course those sankharas have been driven by the confusion at the same time. It's interdependent with the next step, which is known as namarupa which literally translates as name and form, which actually doesn't mean a lot usually, but the name part covers feeling, perception, intention, contact and attention here. That's all called name. It deals, in other words, with mental processing yeah. as we move in the in, through the world. The rupa part... And the form part um, is usually spoken about in terms of the four great elements. The Majjhima Makaya in one of the texts in the Majjhima Makaya says, feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. This is called name. The four eight great elements and the form dependent on these elements, this is called form. This is called rupa. The word rupa literally means shape. It's the way we identify things. The shape they have. You know, literally, recognition of a face is a recognition of a shape, you know, of a body, of a book. I recognise a shape here. Um, and it gets associated also with, a, with naming. There's a whole discussion about this in Indian thought, but I'm not going to touch on that. We use feeling to sort out what's what. You know, and Nama Rupa becomes one of the ways that we identify things and identify with them. You know, so it's a process of identification. So feeling is also attached to it. So we're now looking forward a little bit into this. You know, feeling being the primary base of this. We're looking at perception, the way that we perceive these forms, the intentions with which we move towards or away from, the contact and the attention that we give them. 
These are our ways, again, of sorting out the world, if you like, rummaging through the world and finding out what is good for us. So notice again, without joking about it, this is still all about me. How I find my way around the world. These habits of thought are where we grow the things that sankharas give to us, that are sankhara-based. It is a sankhara-driven awareness that's behind the drive to sort out everything through these ways, how the world relates to us, how I can manipulate the world for my benefit. It's about about identification. We identify with what we encounter. We identify with what we encounter. We recognize its form. We give it a name. And then we identify with it. Identification doesn't mean merging with it, by the way. Identifying means literally, I get identity by identifying. So it's about self-construction that's involved in this. Sense data comes in and we identify with it in some way. And because we do that, consciousness keeps on seeking in different ways. It's like our consciousness is hungry in the world, our sense-driven consciousnesses to identify with, to seek out, to search for what is good for us in this world. Having found confirmation of itself, having been fed, it goes on looking. We find something, what do we do? We go on looking. We want more and more and more. (laughs) When I I kind of talk about this, I always get this impression, some of you might have seen the movie The Little Shop of Horrors. Do you remember that movie that had um, almost a giant Venus flytrap in it? And the one word it said was, feed me. (laughs) That's what our sense consciousnesses are doing as it moves through the world. Feed me. (laughs) Now, the next link in the stage, and I really am shortening these just so we can get to the end of this. Salayatana, six sense bases, six sense spheres. Not a lot of news there. Yeah, not a lot of news, but it's completely important because it's functional, it's fundamental, it's fundamental to the whole process that we have these six sense spheres. There's a lot more can be said about them, but I'm going to kind of leave it at that this evening. The senses are driven to seek confirmation of self because of everything that's gone before. So our six sense bases, again, if you like, if you want to put it this, are virally infected by the confusion and what is being constructed out of that confusion, and how our consciousness is constructed in relationship to those sense bases, and the sorting out that goes on in Nama Rupa, that goes on in name and form, which is about identity and identification in that. Does that make sense? I mean, I really don't want to lose you at this stage. Because we have senses, again, not a lot of news. We're contacting the world constantly. We're in constant contact with the world. Contact grounded in ignorance of dukkha. Yeah? It's a contact which grounded, is grounded in ignorance of dukkha. It drives our forms of contact. In other words, they're sankhara-fueled. Some contacts, such as in meditation, some contacts we learn to have without them being sankhara-fueled. Yeah? 
Many of you will know that one of the texts in the Udana where the Buddha is asked to give a brief summary of the text and he says, in the hearing, only the hearing. Yeah, in the tasting, only the tasting. In perception, only the perception. Or in the perceiving, only the perceiving. What he's really saying is that these are ways of being in contact through our senses with the objects of the world without them being sankhara-driven. Yeah? So our contacts. Occasionally we can do this sitting on the cushion, where we can allow, just for example, the reverberations of a sound on the eardrum without having to identify it, without immediately moving into that position of trying to sort it out in our world to place it. Notice how, though, the normal tendency is to want to sort it out. Straight away, what's that noise? You know, kind of place it, that's fine, I can settle now again. You know, what's that pain? Got to identify that. You know, sort it out, settle it. Just occasionally we can have the experience of beginning to perceive through the senses without it being fueled by the sankharas and that need to sort and identify and create identity out of it. So contact, contact is, you know, is, is our way of being in the world. And that gives rise to something I'm going to skip speaking about because we spoke about it on a couple of mornings, which is the Vedana, the feeling, the tone the tonality of our experience, the taste of our experience that comes through. As you can see, although it's not under our control and it's always changing, it is actually conditioned. You know? Some Vedanas are conditioned. Some Vedanas, are, well, all Vedanas are conditioned in different ways. Some might be just conditioned by our hard wiring, others conditioned by Sankharas. You know, to sort out what is pleasant and unpleasant in our world or that which we are indifferent to. And notice again, just those seemingly innocuous terms, pleasant, unpleasant, neither, are actually another way that we get driven into the world. If it's pleasant, how can this be for me? How can I use this? If it's unpleasant, no, 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 I don't want that. Yeah? If it's neutral, indifference, yeah, then it doesn't actually really enter into my world at all. So again, this is you know, indicative of going all the way back to Avijja. Now, this drives the next link in the chain, which is tanha, this word which means thirst, a fundamental thirst, a thirst that can't be satisfied. It's a desire, yeah? a desire that actually finds no fruition, no end point. And we can speak about it on the, all the terms that have been mentioned, and I'm not going to go into them in detail again because it's, you know, we haven't got time. But you know, that tanha is the drive that drives towards sensuality. Again, Akinchino spoke about this very eloquently, and so did Christina. That drive towards sensuality, the drive towards becoming in some way, and of course the drive to not wanting to be in various ways. Yeah. Upadana, the topic of pretty well most of what Akinchino spoke about last night, being the ninth link in the chain with kamma, forms of grasping. These are our forms of entrapment that are arising if we looked back in the chain all the way to ignorance. The kamma, the sensually driven activities of our lives, again, sorting out what is good for us, our pleasure-seeking in life, our views and our opinions, which don't seem naturalized. We cling to them. They form our world. 
our ways of controlling the world, which can be quite ritualistic, quite methodically ritualistic. When we look at our, just our daily activities, get up in the morning, have a, cup, have a shower, have a cup of coffee. All seems pretty ritualistic, doesn't it? But then there are ritualistic habits of mind, which we also engage in. And of course, the concretization, this um, entrapment, this, this um, concentration around the notion of self, which we call atavada. You know, we fuel it. We fuel the grasping. We're entrapped by our own kamma, by our own sensuality, by our ditties, by our rituals, and by our self-construct. We're entrapped by that. Often it's likened to the way that you trap monkeys. Yeah? You trap monkeys by putting something in a bowl, burying it in the ground, has a long thit and a thin neck into which the monkey reaches, grabs hold of the banana at the bottom of it, it's now trapped because it won't let go of what it's got. All it's got to do is let go. And it's a way, wonderful metaphor, I think, for the human condition, where we're trapped by our forms <laughs> of sensuality, by our opinions. Notice also how opinions, just mention this very briefly, how opinions don't seem to be kind of um, contingent, do they? You know, I don't say, well, I have this little opinion. I could be easily persuaded. You know, I'm not really attached to it in any particular way. Yes, you could persuade me if the things could be otherwise than I really think they are. That's not the way we speak about these deep-seated views. Viewpoints, actually, is a better way of translating, I think, this rather than views. They're viewpoints. They're viewpoints. They're perspectives we take on the world, and they appear to be true. Yeah? And, this, and we're entrapped by them. Views which are conditioned by sankharas. Sensuality, which is conditioned by sankharas. All of those views, particularly, let's just concentrate that one out, views are, in the, are the support for the sense of a lasting self. They're views which actually begin to hold that sense of a lasting and enduring self in place in the world. And that starts with just simply noting pleasant, unpleasant, neither. You know, we can start to see this. We can see almost how self-construction occurring out of pleasant, unpleasant, neither craving into grasping. The Buddha likened this to putting fuel on the flames, you know, almost like pouring petrol on the fire, the fires of greed, aversion and delusion you know, when we engage in this process of grasping. Bhava, ten, you'll be pleased to know. We've only got another two to do. <laughs> Bhava, the ways in which uh, we become through the forms of clinging that we see in Upadana, that we see in the previous link. These are arising because of that. Beliefs about who we are, what we are, what we need, our place in the world, what we deserve, what we don't deserve. Yeah. This is our forms of bhava. We're always becoming this person who deserves this, doesn't deserve this, needs this, doesn't need this, wants this, doesn't want this. You know, everyone has a negation to it, wanting and not wanting, as we move into that position in the world. So we could have a whole litany of that. And of course, that gives rise to the next link, is you know, what you want, sometimes you get. And you end up being born. This is called jati, which literally means birth. 
you find yourself in a condition. You find yourself in a certain position in the world, having been determined by the previous links in the chain. You know, so I find myself wanting something. In some occasions, I will find myself getting it. I've wanted it that much. But bringing an end to this is Jara Marana, which is old age and death. <laughs> now, this simply means... And that can literally, obviously, may relate to our notion of old age and death as you know, we conventionally understand it. But what it refers to is dissolution and disappearance of something. So even when we get that with the pleasure we thought it was going to have, when we get that wanted thing, what we see is a declining of the pleasure and its disappearance. Even if that status or power or wealth or just an object, or some view of ourselves, or some position that we wanted, what we find ourselves is going, yes! <laughs> As it declines and disappears. <laughs> yeah. That is Jaramarana. And then, <laughs> it's impermanence, it's dukkha, everything that comes into being, ceases to be. It's cyclical. And the Buddha is speaking about this as being the mess we're in. Yeah? And this is happening. This is the really finish off. This is happening every moment of your life. This process is going on based on the reading that I'm giving to you of this. This is happening every moment. Now the Buddha says, by understanding this process, particularly understanding the relationship, just to finish this point, but particularly understanding the relationship between feeling, between contact, feeling, craving, clinging, and becoming, we begin to start to unravel the process. When I start to see that, so when we engage in that little exercise, which seemed fairly innocuous of just noting pleasant, unpleasant, neither, we're actually beginning to map out the landscape of what, in a sense, is the most important step of what, seeing what happens next. Because the what happens next is that craving, clinging, and becoming, with the eventual disappointment and the feeding round in the system. Now, I've presented this to you in a linear way. It is also... Uh, wonderfully interactive, where each factor is moving in and interacting with other factors. Some factors are spoken about as being interdependent. But, you know, this is one way of presenting it. And I'm sorry this has gone on for so long, but it's a snapshot, believe me or not, <laughs> of dependent origination. And thank you for your attention, and thank you for staying with me over such a difficult topic. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, perhaps just a, a minute's quiet um, to finish.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.